May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. And welcome to the Labor Day remnant. We're glad you're here. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and he was not able to finish. Much to the amazement of the men who attended this last Wednesday, we watched the movie There Will Be Blood as a part of our Men, Movies, and God series. The brainchild of Paul Thomas Anderson and actor Daniel Day-Lewis, it is a story loosely based on Upton Sinclair's novel Oil, originally published in 1927. It's fortunate that the movie does little more than take the book as a starting point because the novel is truly dreadful. Written with long preachy essays interspersed throughout the narrative, it is designed to make the case for socialism over capitalism. Think oil as Rand for leftists. There Will Be Blood is one of those rare occasions when it is easy to say the movie is really better than the book. The movie, however, is not a simplistic diatribe on economics. Rather, it is an intense exploration of what happens when a human being gives himself wholeheartedly to a bankrupt worldview talking one evening to a man that he believes is his long-lost brother, Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview, observes, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money to get away from everyone, from these people. And so he does. When he discovers that the man who has befriended him is not his brother, he murders him. He exploits people to buy up huge tracts of land. He sends, sends his son away when the boy is made deaf by an accident. And when his son returns and talks to his father about following in his footsteps by building an oil company in Mexico, Plainview drives him away, arguing that he can only now be a competitor. And in order to silence the charlatan preacher who knows him best, he murders him in a final violent outburst. Plainview's last line, and the last line in the movie, is, I'm finished. 
And so he is. Plainview has chosen the tower that he will build. And although he may not have anticipated the full cost, he has paid it. And he is finished in every sense of the word. He has won the competition. He has set out to win it and does. He is wealthy and alone. His contempt has led him to dominate or drive away everyone who might have befriended or loved him. And he has blood on his hands, both literally and metaphorically. What might have been a trite, simplistic movie that retraced Sinclair's novel, Anderson and Lewis offer up a geography of the human heart. And Jesus understands how different that geography can be. We can choose life or we can reject it. And if we do reject it, whether we do it wholeheartedly in the way that Daniel Plainview does, or we pursue life half-heartedly, the results are strikingly different. That is why the path of discipleship that Jesus describes was referred to by the early church as the way. And it's also why you won't find 19th century references to religion in the text of the New Testament. The Christian life cannot be reduced to rituals, conventions, or beliefs as important as those are. It is, according to the New Testament, a road that leads to life, a journey, a way of thinking, a way of looking at the world, a path out of desperation, a life built out of practices and conventions that heal our relationships with God and with one another. It isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. It isn't pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by. It is a decision about how to live life now. The decision not to avoid hell, but to avoid becoming hell. Not the decision to go to heaven, but to begin breathing in its life-giving influence now. Based on what I have witnessed over the years, I can't say this often enough. Christians far too often talk about taking the summer off from church, about Bible study for others but not themselves, and too often satisfy themselves by checking off a Sunday or two, drifting through their relationship with God rather than asking what kind of tower, meaning what kind of life am I building? And I don't say it to be harsh or to rail on about it, but to make clear what Jesus is deeply concerned about in the spiritual choices that we make. Let me say this as clearly as I can. I don't care about the church as an organization any more than you do. I may actually care less about it than you do. And I doubt that at this late stage in my life that there is anything that will entice me to care more about it. 
What I do care about and what I believe that Jesus is pointing to is the fact that Jesus creates the church one baptized body at a time, building it up to be his body. And as his body, it is meant to be a place where people are healed, forgiven, and restored so that we, in turn, can be people who offer ourselves in the effort to find healing, forgiveness, and restoration in others. And what Jesus says about this choice is that you can't be half-hearted about it. The Christian life, as Eugene Peterson puts it, is a long obedience in the same direction. That is why Jesus lists this outrageous, provocative list of things that his path, his way, might cost you. It's entirely up to him, of course, and it's also a function of what happens in our lives. But they are potentially the cost of that long obedience in a single direction. Some of us may lose our families as a result of our faith. One of my own friends chose to follow Jesus, and his frustrated, angry parents finally said to him, you were an accident. We never wanted you anyway. Another friend's husband told her, you can become a priest as long as it remains a hobby. Another friend who wouldn't be half-hearted about his faith lost his job, struggled with part-time jobs for over a year, and lived with the anger of his wife until it pulled their marriage apart. We all know the story, too, of saints, ancient and modern, who have lost their lives in witness to their faith. Martin Luther King among them. Jesus isn't dealing in abstractions here. And I've seen it lived out in my own life and in the lives of those that I've walked alongside of. But he describes the path of discipleship in this way because we aren't playing church and we aren't indulging in a nice bit of poetry. The Christian life is not a nice thing for nice people to do. It is a frank assessment of how broken we are, how broken the people around us are, and we are offered a way out and through. Now, frankly, this means that the way of Jesus is also not a lot of other things. I've already named two of them. It isn't eternal fire insurance, and it isn't about being nice. Yes, our lives are hidden in Christ, and in Christ we live now and will live, embraced by the power of the resurrection. But that's not the main point. Eternal life is lived out in the presence of God and on the way we are changed, not just in the world to come, but in this life as well. We are blessed in order to bless others, and counting the cost means realizing that as Christians, we are called to belong to Christ. 
But that is also means then that it isn't just about being nice. Apart from the fact that being nice isn't always what call is called for, it isn't the point. Jesus, as described in Luke's gospel, isn't being nice either. There are times in life when if we want to be healed, we need to hear hard things. We need boundaries. We need discipline. We need to sacrifice. We need to repent. And there are times when if others are going to be healed, those who exploit them need to be opposed. Bullies need to be resisted. Tyrants need to be told no or more than just no. But beyond eternal fire insurance and the niceness factory, the Christian way is also not about me and mine. It's not about anyone's brand of politics. It isn't about anyone's country, including the one that we love most. So you can't wrap family values around it. You can't wrap anyone's flag around it. Come to that. You can't even wrap that denominational flag around it. The Christian way is the decision to follow Jesus. To begin to follow that path and to take seriously the conviction that we are here as the church, as Christ's body, to make that journey together. And each of us will need to count the cost. In every generation, there are Daniel Plainviews. People who choose to build a different kind of tower, a different kind of life, a different kind of future. Not all of them are spectacularly abusive, but many of them are marked by the same kind of emptiness thanks to ambition, selfishness, and addiction. There are still others who stay nominally connected to the church, but never really commit. They nibble a few hors d'oeuvres, they have an occasional drink, most of their lives are a pastiche of trips to Home Depot, a nine-to-five job, and an occasional Titans game around here. Jesus is inviting you this morning to build a life, not a resume. To enter into it fully, not linger at the fringe of things. To find healing now rather than postpone it until an indefinite future that may never come. To receive wisdom and grace that you might become wisdom and grace in the lives of others. Your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your relatives, your friends and neighbors. Count the cost. Say yes and build a life.